1: Today, we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz, best known for directing and producing the Sundance documentary, Kusama Infinity. Our special guest today is filmmaker Brendan Bubien. He's He's currently a digital video producer at KCET in Los Angeles and has a passion for telling stories in local communities that often go untold or unseen. His documentaries include Growing Up Behind Barbed Wire, about the experience of two Japanese-American girls who were forced to live in incarceration camps during World War II, and Hansu Pluma and Sumano, about the life and work of L.A. Times journalist Gustavo Ariano, Brendan graduated from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts and taught filmmaking at Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont. Recently, he completed his MFA in documentary filmmaking at Dodge College of Film and Media Arts at Chapman University. Thank you so much, Claire, for the
0: lovely introduction, and thank you, Brendan, for being here with us today. We appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. Um, to start, yeah, it's really I would... a pleasure. Oh, great. Thank you. To start, I would love to talk about your recent film, Growing Up Behind Barbed Wire. And so for anyone who hasn't seen it, could you please tell us um, what it's about?
2: Yeah, so it's a short animated documentary, um, and it follows... Um, the stories of uh, aki and Kazi Um and I had the honor of meeting them and interviewing both of them and the film sh- kind of through the animation and kind of the contrast of the animation with archival uh, materials that we used from the family um, and from elsewhere kind of illustrates kind of the uh, the the kind of dichotomy they had to go through their childhood innocence growing up um, in the incarceration camps during World War II um, you know while simultaneously um, you know having that they're being a child you know in that experience while something so traumatic is going on around them
0: yeah it's one of those Um, just shameful pieces of American history, I think, that a lot of people, you know, may not even remember anymore. So Mm -hmm. it's great that you're able to shine a light on that. And I wonder um, if you could tell us, how did you first become acquainted with the story?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, So funny enough, it it wasn't originally my first um, kind of topic, of course, with most documentary filmmaking, you know, when you go through the research process um you know you start off on one thing you kind of end up discovering something completely different often um and so in this case originally i was hoping to do a story i just come finished the film about Gustavo Arano uh Consumplumma and Sumano and i knew i really wanted to cover more stories um, something else about Orange County and i knew for me too i wanted to do something that was more historic and archival based and so originally I was going to do a story about the Mendez versus Westminster uh, civil rights case, which is a very pivotal civil rights case that um, preceded Brown versus Board of Education and ended segregation of schools in South. I mean, in California. Um, in the course of researching that, it just turns out my my mom happened to be in the same fitness class as Janice Minimitsu, who is the aunt to Aki and Kazi and she happened to be writing a book um, about the connection between her family and the Mendes versus Westminster story. So it turns out so the Mendes versus Westminster family, they were originally uh, a Mexican-American family who um, were living in Santa Ana, and they moved to Westminster uh, and leased this farm. And the farm they turned up to lease was the Minimitsu family because they had been sent to the camp. Um, and, of course, in, in that, you know, with the Mendez family, you know, their daughter Sylvia should have gone to the white school. At the time, schools were segregated by white schools and Mexican schools in Orange County. And and Sylvia could technically went to the white school because of where they now lived, but she was denied that, and that led, of course, to the case. But the fact that these two kind of injustices took place in the same, you know, location – is you know, gosh, you know, it's it, it's kind of definitely a, a part of American history that doesn't get talked about enough. That, but should be talked about. Um, and for me, I think after a while, I was kind of researching and talking to Janice a little bit more and hearing more about her family story. And I think for me, it was really when I visited the Japanese American Museum, uh, National Museum, in in downtown L. A. In Little Tokyo, I there was a little piece in the museum about just experiences of children growing up in these, you know, being incarcerated. And, you know, just what does that do? You know, how does that shape your experience, you know, in this very pivotal time in your life? And I think for me, it was something that I thought was really interesting to explore. And and after kind of talking to Janice and hearing a little bit more about her and I decided to kind of pivot the story to kind of focus on them.
0: Yeah, I think that was a good choice. It seems like person at least that I can think of that had this experience was um the the actor George Takei best mm-hmm. known for um you know his Star Trek fame, but um it is it's it's super interesting that there are still, you know, people alive able to tell their firsthand experiences and share them. So, it's great that you were able to document them. And I wonder what you found most surprising about the story. I think for
2: me as as I kind of went along in the process, I think what was so surprising was just I think just the 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 way I think when we talk about, you know, of course, trauma and I think you know, and I think it it's a very hard subject to dive into, especially when you talk about trauma that took place as a child. I think um I think what was really surprising was just kind of learning how just and and this was talking with different experts and um even someone who had written a really good um dissertation kind of on the subject, um, just about just the generational trauma um of how, you know, something like this affected generations later. Um you know, and I think it was just meeting Aki and Kazi, meeting Janice and I think it was just really interesting, like Janice's father you know, he was 18 or so at the time when they were incarcerated. And the, the amount of responsibilities he had to take care of, you know, uh, because his father had been sent to um, not to just an incarceration camp. He had been sent to a Department of Justice, pretty much like a prison camp, um, just because he was accused of being a spy, which was not true at all. Um, and I think it was just seen the different ways, even within this family, the way they process that experience. And you know, of course, even, um, you know, and I think just even the ways, um, you know, I think generational trauma can have an effect. And I think, um, I think for me, it was just it was really surprising to kind of, you know, kind of more learn about just kind of how that happens for each person. And I, and I think it says a lot too about you know, the, there's so many different traumas that have happened you know, in the course of American history. And I think, um, you know, everyone, there's different ways that people process it differently. And I think, um, you know, I think it's always important to kind of, in the course of the filmmaking process, you know, how do you, you know, kind of respect and, and kind of, um, you know, and under, you know, kind of, I guess, understand and also just, you know, respectfully, like, you know, uh, present, you know, a traumatic experience is definitely a big challenge.
0: In your experience, what are some of the special challenges of telling stories from the past? And as part of that, too, just for anyone who's unfamiliar with this piece of history, could you just kind of um, remind us what what um, years are we talking about here when this family was in this camp?
2: Yeah. Um, if I remember, it's, it's been a while since I had pulled up the since I made the film, but um, I believe it was in 1942 um, is when the um, FDR signed the um, executive order that sent all these Japanese-American families into these um, incarceration camps. Um, And the Minuitzu family was there for three years, along with many other individuals and families. Um, And so... Yeah, to answer your question, though, um, I think it's, with with telling stories of the past, I think a big part of it is, and and it's a lot of part of the process I kind of take, especially even now at KCT, is allowing those, you know, who are connected to the stories to kind of be able give, making sure they have the opportunity to tell their own stories through their own voice, and I think with this one, it's, it's a challenge of, you know, I think, you know, I had, like I said, I had the honor of interviewing Aki and Kazi and and their voices is what you hear in the film. But I realized very quickly, um, you know, you know, they're now in their eighties, but the story they're telling is from when they were seven years old, you know, and I think the challenge of course with many documentaries is how do you portray the past, you know, in, you know, do you necessarily utilize archival and you um, kind of other methods. Some people do recreations. In this case, we decided to do animation. And, and I think it was really important, to to incorporate the archival materials, both from the family and elsewhere. You know, and this included photographs, you know, and actual um, artifacts in the family as well, you know, suitcases, you know, um, different objects that, you know. And a lot of times, a lot of these families actually created, you know, the materials of what, you know, the resources they had were pretty limited, you know, and, I mean, they barely had anything at all in the camps. A lot of them were, you know, most families were forced to sell all that they had, you know, oftentimes the people who were taking advantage of them in that situation. And so by the time they got to the camp, they had to make do with what they could find. And so a lot of folks, you know, and the Janice, showed me like even in her house, she has a, uh, a beautiful desk that was actually Car you know, built in in the camp, um, you know, co- including also to, you know, her father's like made a knife um, that he used while he was in the camp. And then also there's, you know, famously, there's other folks who became artisans during that time. You know, it's just originally ways to pass the time, but then they kind of really developed into a craft. Um, for example, there's the beautiful bird pins made by a couple of different individuals in the camps. Um, that I highly recommend taking a look at. But I think, I think of course, to go back to what, uh, what was mentioned before. I think the challenge when you're working with stories in the past, I think it's, it's a matter of how do you portray it in a way that both that matches the story that's being told, um, while also allowing audiences to be um, immersed into that story.
0: To my next question, which is. Could you talk about your decision to use animation in the documentary and what what your experience was like working with an animator?
2: Mhm. Uh so I had the honor to work with Meixian Yang. Um she's a graduate of the MFA um experimental animation program at CalArts and I mean, I had to give her so much credit just the sheer amount of of work and creativity and um she brought to this project and it was just really an honor to work with her alongside um Roxy Jin, who was, was our compositor, and kind of helped us in that process as well. And, and Meng, she she, um, it was, she comes from a background of kind of, uh, what's the word, um, kind of most mostly stop motion. And we knew because this is, you know, my thesis project while at Chapman, you know, our time was very limited, unfortunately, and I, and I made it very clear early on. And so together we kind of tried to think of ways where we, how can we, you know, still utilize, you know, immerse people in the story, you know, also fitting within our time frame, And, and she came with the, the amazing, um, and if you see the film, you'll notice, um, the characters of Aki and Kazi, the, the physical, um, characters in the animation, um, they look like they're carved out of wood, but actually enough they're carved out of styrofoam and, um, and Mengshing did an incredible job of carving them and painting them. You know, and it, it really, like I said, harkens back to those handmade objects that were made in the camps. Um, and then we, what we did is we combined this with, you know, the archival that I had collected in the course of the research. Um, and in addition, we shot visual plates on location at uh, the Manzanar um, National Historic Site, which is the former um, site of the Manzanar incarceration camp. And, in like I said, it was really kind of through the animation kind of capturing that dichotomy between their childhood innocence, which is in the characters, you know, in kind of, in the stories they're telling, you know, with the traumatic reality that's going on around them. Um, and I think, you know, I think the big challenge in the decision to turn to the animation was really came from, You know, we actually shot the interviews in person with them, Aki and Kazi, you know, and we kind of been building some verite scenes with them. But very quickly I realized all the stories they are telling, you know, they take place when they're seven years old. And like I said, they're now in their 80s. And I think it was hard to kind of really immerse people in that time period that they're talking about without kind of actually taking us back to that place. And so animation, um, on the recommendation of uh, my advisor, Christine Fugate, I realized, um, we both realized that that would probably be the best way to really immerse people into that story. Um, yeah.
0: Well, thank you. It's it's a, it, very interesting to hear about. And I'm wondering how the family portrayed felt about seeing their story on the screen.
2: hmm Yeah, and so it was, it was really great when the film was all done. Um, of course, Janice um, and a few others, uh, family friends got to attend the screening in person at Chapman um when it was finished but then um soon after a couple months later we did a because um Aki and Kazi both kind of live farther away from Orange County um we did a screening virtually with them and I and even of course there's a couple of relatives um including you know Aki and Kazi their granddaughter um who's a teacher now teaching about these things in in the school she's at um, and then in addition to when the relatives, um, lives in Japan, um and, is, um, and so it was really great to show it to the family. It was truly an honor. And I remember just, and I remember I was very, you know, and I had been working alongside Janice and the family very closely through the whole process. And I think, you know, for me, especially someone who's you know, not Japanese American, you know, I think it was really important for me to make sure that, the voices of those in the story and those involved in the story were, were continuously involved in the process. And so a lot of that was really working with Janice and alongside a few other experts along the way, um, who really helped shape the story. And when the family finally saw it, they were just, um, they really loved the film and it, it really meant so much for, you know, their, especially Rocky and Kanye, their stories to be honored in this way and, and their family, Um, You know, and I I remember they were just so honored, and um, for me, it was a joy to kind of be able to see that reaction. Um, And I remember even even the relative in Japan was saying, "We gotta get this out here, you know, we gotta show this around to schools in in Japan too." I think this is an important story to be told, and um, you know, so it was really truly an honor to be able to screen it for them and, and for them to to really to know that you know, I did their, their family story, um, you know, great honor. So
0: Well, I'm so glad you got to have that experience. It's always nice when the um you know, the people the film have been made about are able to see it and enjoy it and are, you know, happy mm-hmm. with the results. And I wonder what the best part has been about sharing the film with audiences.
2: Mm-hmm. So funny enough, um, even though we, I completed the film a year ago, it it just premiered at the River Run Festival in um, Winston Salem a few weeks ago, and I had the honor of attending. And it was really interesting because I think with this film, I realized very early on it's it's audience really lied in kind of more of the education space, you know, especially for its length and kind of the approach we took with it. Um, and I and I think the goal of the film, of course, is not necessarily. There's so many details, of course to the incarceration camps, and even to uh, the Minyumitsu family story that, you know, we had to leave out, you know, for the sake of time. Um, But ultimately, I realized with this film, you know, working with Janice um, and Manchi and many other collaborators, we realized that I think ultimately that this film is really meant to kind of more start a conversation. You know, it's really a film about empathy and, and really allowing someone to understand you know, the experiences of, you know, what it was like to be a child in this incarcerated. Um, and I think, you know, I think what's amazing about it, so our, the River Run Festival, we actually screened to um, over 200 uh, middle school students, um, and I think it was about the same amount of high school students. And it was really interesting seeing, you know, the reactions from teachers and students, Um I think especially just in the sense of just its its connection to um just so many current events and I think just the sense of creating spaces for empathy and, and, and creating spaces where people start to ask questions of wait, what was going you know, how do we not know about this or, you know, kind of how how this come about and you know, and that's and that's really the goal of the film is is to create a space where people begin to start, you know, on the process to go learn about it more for themselves and, and working with Janice, especially, you know, she wrote a whole book on the topic with her fam about her family and the, it's connection to the, you know, Meadows versus Westminster case. So oh, it's really great. It's, it's, you know, it's an honor to kind of be able to work with her to kind of connect people to the resources that she's already collected over the last couple of years.
0: You to, to move on and talk about some of your other work, you also made a short documentary about Gustavo Ariano which won mm-hmm. the audience award at the Newport beach film festival in 2022. And I would love it if you could please tell us a little bit about how you got involved with that story and also remind us of the title.
2: Mm-hmm. So the title is Punta Pluma in Sumano. Um, the ballad of Gustavo Ariano, is the full title. Um, and yeah, no, that film is, is, is truly a, a blast to make. So um, that film was made in the middle of my time um, at Chapman during my MFA. Um, and to give context, you know, this is, you know, the, you know, this is like January, February of 2021, you know, vaccines still haven't come out, so, you know, and we're still shooting under very heavy, you know, um, you know, COVID safety kind of protocols and, Um, And so at the time, this was originally when I was thinking of making a film based on archival. And I was was doing research on kind of just um, kind of inspired by the film um, Let the Fire Burn, which is made entirely of archival footage. Um, I kind of wanted to challenge myself and make something similar. And I really wanted to find a story that was kind of going on in Southern California and specifically Orange County. In the course of my research I discovered kind of the work of Gustave Rayano and um and you know, my professor at the time Christine Fugate also kinda of mentioned, you know, you should read some of his work, you know, because at the time, you know, currently he's at the LA Times and is doing incredible work really about these kind of stories, um, you know, of communities and you know, and I think that often, you know, don't get really told or highlighted in the way that they need to. And his work definitely challenges readers in a way. I don't think people have a necessarily neutral response to Gustavo. People either, in the course of making the film and even after, people either come to love Gustavo or they hate his his guts. There's kind of no in between. Um, And I think it's just because of the way he writes and the way he speaks. It's it's very, um, yeah, you can't be neutral about it. And I think for me, I, I... I remember reading his work. I was like, "This guy's so fascinating. Like, he'd make such a great character for a film." And I remember, and then Christine mentioned, "Like, oh, by the way, I actually know him. You know, and they know his wife." And, and I was like, and I think in the back of my mind, I was thought, "Oh my gosh, she'd be such a great topic for a film." And after my first idea fell through, it was suggested to me, like, I should just try to reach it out and see if it could happen. With the idea of like, there's no way that this will happen. And so I emailed them and him, and he responded like, "Sure, let's go for it." And no one had ever made a film about him, even though it just felt like it it needed to be done. Um, You know, then we started the process, of course, of making the film. That's kind of how it came about.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about some of the, um, like, what was the biggest obstacle you had to overcome to tell his story, and what was the most satisfying part of telling his story? I I don't know. It's Mm -hmm. possible the obstacle may have been COVID, but if it was something else.
2: Yeah. It's kind of tied to it, because I think originally when I went set out to make the film, I, you know, I think... you know, reading his article, especially the LA Times now and kind of his process, you know, he kind of goes out into these places and meets these people in these communities. And my original idea was it was, you know, going to be more of a portrait of a journalist in the process. Um, but of course, with COVID, you know, he wasn't going out and meeting people, you know, his his whole, you know, he pretty much worked from his desk at his house. And I think the challenge was, well, okay, that's not <laughs> very exciting, unfortunately. But I think it was just thinking more into his own story, you know, I think he was the former editor of the O C Weekly and um, you know, like I said, he's someone who's very passionate about his work and I think, you know, I, um you know, there was a situation where it got to the point where mm-hmm. when the paper was sold, you know, he was you know, he kinda of put they gave him an ultimatum where to fire his whole staff and he in response that either you cut my pay, you know, or I'm leaving and thinking they wouldn't take it. And they ended up letting him go. And he was such a recognized figure in the journalism space, especially in Orange County. It was definitely a shock to everyone. And and in the course of the interview I did with him, it was over a two-hour two interview with the, with him. It was definitely one of the hardest interviews I've ever done up to this point. Um you know, I think it's one thing to interview people who aren't used to being interviewed, but it's one thing to interview someone who does it for their job. And so it was definitely kind of understanding, Kind of, you know, it's, I think it was kind of playing his own game. And so I think, um, but in the course of that, I really came to realize there was parts of his story I'd never even knew. And I decided to kind of more focus on what brought him to this point in his career um, and how it shaped kind of his his how he writes and who he is. Um, so that kind of more became the focus of the story.
0: Are you able to give us an update about how his life has changed since the film was made?
2: hmm Um, so since the, the film was made, he, he published a great book alongside two amazing, um, academics in Orange County called the people's guide to Orange County. And I, I can't recommend this book enough. Um, there's actually funny enough on, on the KCT.org site, they've, uh, we've worked with them at at the station. They've published a few articles on the site, uh, based on the book. And so the book is more it reads like a travel guide, but it's more focusing on these um these parts of Orange County history and um culture that kinda of go beyond, you know, the typical understanding of Orange County history, you know, to be honest, the, the kind of whitewashed history, you know, of where it's more focused on you know, on Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm and the beach, you know, and you know, and I think these are more stories about you know the rich communities that are really the backbone of orange county you know um, you know in the and also the instances of just you know the injustices that have been kind of forgotten about and the moments of really the activism and kind of going against the narratives that often is told about orange county and um, you can really see his fingerprints when you read kind of the locations and the places and the stories they chose in that book. Um, so it's really exciting to kind of see um, what he's been kind of doing with, with that book, too. I know he does tours often with the other two authors um, ar- across Orange County. So
0: Currently, you're working as a digital video producer at KCET in Los Angeles, which is super mm-hmm. exciting. And I wonder if you could tell us about the stories um, that you tell as part of that job, and what kinds of elements you look for when you're picking a mentor
2: Mm-hmm. Um, no, great question. And so, for so KCT for those maybe who aren't based in Los Angeles is the flagship PBS station um, that uh, combined with uh, PBS SoCal um, in Los Angeles in the Southern California region. Um, And so, when I was brought on, um, I was kind of tasked with um, creating um, a new series, and it's a digital series that lives on our our YouTube channel and on the KCT.org site, Um, and it's um, a weekly art series, and I think, um, and so, of course, uh, with KCT, their most well-known arts program is ArtBound. Um, It's their full-length broadcast program, and Artbound. Um, and my colleagues Nick Chakim and the rest of the production department do an incredible job of really diving into specific artists and movements and periods in um, art history kind of in um, Southern California um, you know but of course you know being a full broadcast program it you know it takes them months of research and production and post production in the meantime there's so many great stories about artists that kind of artists and organizations and art that kind of um, across Southern California that kind of um come and go in that time that really um need to be told and i and it's really exciting so working with that team we all kind of they've helped kind of give me some ideas as well and and you know me and alongside my associate producer um paula kylie we we work together. To kind of go in, out and find stories. And I think for me, at least at, up to this point, kind of my working thesis behind kind of the series is really, you know, kind of finding artists, you know, and in organizations based in Southern California, or even things that come to here, um, and kind of exploring what did what do these artists, what does this, their work have to say about life in Southern California and the communities they are in? Um, and I think the challenge especially, I think, you know, of course, I think it's, it's there's times where we've gotten to cover some of really the exciting kind of bigger topics, you know, of course, at more of the bigger institutions um, in Southern California. Um, but I think there's something about to be said um, about kind of when you can tell the stories of artists who, you know, I think you wouldn't see in these big institutions because I think something to acknowledge is just the barriers, you know, in um you know, that takes, you know, for some artists, especially those from underrepresented communities, you know, to be shown in kind of more larger institutions, um, you know, or even for that matter, smaller, you know, institutions and exhibitions. And I think it's, you know, but yet these artists have such unique and, you know, and strong and important voice that, you know, and it comes very clear for their work. And it's just, it's a matter of just, you know, they, um deserve to have their story be told and shared, you know, with a, a, a much larger platform. And I think it's, it's an honor to kind of dig and find those stories of those kind of artists and, um, and even just through a lot of the relationships, you know, I've had the opportunity to build um, through a lot of great art, you know, institutions, organizations and talking to them and saying, hey, you know, we love the work, you know, here in the museum, but, you know, what's going on in the community that, you know, who's someone that we should talk to and we should cover. And there's been some really great examples of those stories as well.
0: How long are the documentaries you make at KCET? And I'm also wondering how much time you have to make them and if you could give us a few examples of some of the topics you've covered, either individual artists or organizations or both. (laughs)
2: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... The, the pieces themselves are anywhere between four to six minutes. I mean, usually we shoot more for around five minutes or so. Um, you know, and these are created in the course of only, you know, maybe a three-week turnaround usually. You know, one week is kind of pre-production, talking with artists, talking with the institutions, kind of planning out maybe often usually doing a visit to the sites and or the artist studio or the exhibition. Um, you know, the second week, of course, is, you know, we'll go out and we'll shoot. Um, you know, and then usually when I bring it back, I usually, um, sit down and transcribe it and kind of start building the script and the story from the interview. Um, and of course with these, with these stories, you know, there's no host or narrator, you know, in the, goes back to kind of what I was saying before. It's important for me, I was feel to have, you know, those involved in the artists, especially if they're able to, you know, share their own story, um. You know, and I think especially, you know, it goes back to, of course, the mission of I think KCT and, and public media. I think is that opportunity to really highlight, you know, these important voices that are, are part of Southern California. Um, and and um, as far as examples of topics, um, a couple I could do. One of my favorites, I highly recommend watching, is um, one about Remesis. He's a like, um, a Lamert Park uh based artist who does kind of more um stained glass and quilt portraits of um, black figures in history and arts and culture and, and he's just, he was truly just such a joy to me. Um and his work is really just beautiful and incredible. Um some other highlights is um we did one story um about um let me see <laughs> Uh, we did one about lexa Walsh um in her recent exhibition at the Grand Central Arts Center in uh santa Ana california and in her piece was called sisters info shop and It was really an interesting story just there's so many elements to it that we were able to explore in such a short period of time in um, kind of that piece was about um when she you know came to do an artist in residency. At the Grand Central Arts Center, um, you know, she talked to the um, the director of the the program, uh, John Spayak, uh, and he um, kind of and she had said, "I really want to do a story about, you know, religion or in nuns." And he's like, "Well, we just happen to have, um, you know, the the Sisters of St. Joseph in Orange, in Orange, you know, right up the street, you know." And for me, I, I you know living nearby, you know, going to Chapman, i drive by, um, you know, where they, they are all the time. And so it was a really beautiful story because for her, it was really, you know, she grew up, you know, Catholic and, um, you know, going to Catholic school and, you know, and had one experience of, you know, nuns. And, and me and the sisters of St. Joseph, it was interesting seeing the way for her. It was like, how that affect you know, I think, you know, kind of, really surprised her in the sense of learning and the, and the piece she made is really, it's a kind of a take on like a kind of a anarchist info shop. Um, but, in but she does these activations with the sisters and, you know, and the idea is it's like a info booth where you can quote unquote, you know, check out the sisters like a library book and you can sit down and have conversations with them. And it's not even necessarily about religion or anything like that. It's often more about topics, you know, that, you know one sister was like an expert on Harry Potter or something you could talk to them about or um you know one of the sisters sister Ellen that we had the honor of meeting and interviewing you know she um loves the art of uh, miming and so she's in her um kind of full mime costume and makeup and and does that during the show and I think it's a really beautiful story in the sense of just, it, it it kind of covers just the way art can kind of be a place of connection and conversation. And for her, you know, it doesn't necessarily fully change, you know, how she feels about Catholicism per se, but it definitely builds this relationship and, and started a conversation again for her of like under in a place of understanding and connection. And I think, you know, kind of ties back into the bigger themes of the series. You know, like I said, it's, it's how do we find, you know, what can art tell us about the places we are from, the communities we are in and, and, and create places like this of conversation. Um, I, I know it's a long answer, but those those are two of some of my favorites, but there's so many I mean, we're already up to about, you know, we've only been doing this series for a few months now. And we've we got almost 18 episodes already, so...
0: That's great. I watched about a half a dozen of them, and I enjoyed all of them. So, um, yeah, it's super exciting that you're getting to do that. In your experience, what are some of the pros and cons of making short content versus long content? And I'm also wondering if you have any interest in making a feature film, or are you happy sticking with shorts?
2: Mm-hmm. No, great question. And it's it's really interesting. It goes back for me when I was in undergrad at NYU. I had an amazing mentor. Um, Marco Williams um, who really kind of, I remember, you know, of course when you're in school, you know, you, you know, you don't ever have the capacity to really make a long form piece. Um, but he was someone who really said, you know, especially a documentary, he said, you know, a documentary films, shorter is always better. Cause it's, you know, if you could tell a story shorter, it just makes it that much stronger. Um, and, and, I I totally agree. You know, even for me, it's like, you know, there's times where I've been editing a film and it'll be in the 20 minute range, you know, working on the Gustavo Ariano film, or even the last one, you know, there'd be a longer cut. And I come to realize when I made it much shorter, it, it made the story that much stronger because it really forced me to kind of really pull the story down to kind of at the core of it. What's really, you know, what's really the story, what's, this person really about and really focus on the the details that, you know, that really need to be on screen. Um, You know, and with this series too, you know, of course, um, you know, and the hard part is, of course, you know, it does allow you to dive in the details that maybe you couldn't with a long form piece or really kind of get more of a, you know, or really get to personally know a character for a long period of time. Um, You know, Gustavo, you, you could do a full length, you know, feature on him, you know, really get to know him, follow him. You know, I think of a piece like the Jonathan Gold uh, documentary, Sadia uh, Gold, you know, where you're following a journalist for a long period of time in that way. Um, you know, but with short, it was allowed, it was just to give people enough of a taste of who this person is. And I think in the same way with the KCT series, it's, um, you know, I think it's allowed, you know, of course, like I mentioned before, Art Bound is a long-form series, and it does incredible, you know, there's incredible filmmakers involved um, that they bring on. Um, and what's amazing about, you know, that series, of course, they can dive into details and history and the process even more so. Um, but like I said, the, the downside is, of course, it takes a very long period, long amount of time, and, that course, of time so much can happen. Um, you know, and the conversations around different pieces or, you know, an artist or a topic can change. Or even there's things that will come up that is really, um, that really sparks people's interest. And because of the length of the time, it's hard to kind of adjust in that way. Um, but the beauty of short form in the course of the series is, you know, we have the ability to be more agile in the sense of getting out and, and finding and telling these stories in the courses of a few weeks. Um, yeah well, it's
0: and open. to answer your second oh go ahead. Oh go ahead. go
2: ahead. I would say to answer your second question i I think for me i i this is like unexpectedly the dream job I didn't even know existed. Um, I mean, I think you know being able to go out and meet different people every week and really to learn more about just different facets of Southern California through art, through these artists, um, it's truly an honor, you know it's it's really the most it's what it makes me love be in this role even more so. Um I think that you know, someday I you know, I hope to maybe do a feature. You know, I think in the meantime though, I, I, I know at the same time I, I, I love the you know, the variety of just meeting different people every week in the course of this um series and I think, you know, while we we still have this series this is definitely what I'd love to focus on. But maybe someday I'd love to do a feature.
0: Well, it's certainly exciting that you get to work somewhere where you get to, you know, pursue all these great stories and you don't have to worry about fundraising yourself, which is, you know, can be very daunting. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, it does seem like the dream job. So we're um, nearing the end here, but I would love it if you could share with our listeners where they can see your films at KC Um, what the website is and also if you have a personal website and social media handles I would love it if you would share all of that for anyone that wants to follow your career and the work you're doing
2: Um, so to watch the weekly art series you can see it the best way is on our YouTube channel on the KCT YouTube channel Um, you'll see there's a whole playlist of the weekly art series on there Um, you can also visit KCT.org in the arts and culture section and you'll usually see in there um, our latest Episode Um, for my own personal work. You can visit. I have a website. It's it's a B B, um, and then my last name Boobian B U B I O N dot com. And then of course uh, on Instagram you can follow me at B Boobian Film uh, at B Film. And so, um, but yeah, no, um, yeah, we can check out some of the work.
0: Great. I'm sure people will love to um, see what's uh, here in socal and even for anyone who's not in socal there are very interesting artists and topics you're covering so is there anything that i didn't ask you that you would like to share with us before we wrap up um nothing i can think of
2: um just want to say once again what um you know what a pleasure and honor it is to be on on the show and um just speak with you heather and um and of course i i appreciate too just um you know, you were really a big part of the time when I was at Chapman, um, really mentoring me and helping me through the process of, you know, kind of a lot of the production on some of these films. And um, and I know you're continuing to do so as, as, a, um, as you teach at Chapman as well. And I know a lot of students will appreciate that. So thank you.
0: Oh, thank you, Brendan. That's so nice. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for that. Always appreciate the kind words. And thank you, Claire, for helping us with the tech side. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Mm-hmm. Yes, always a pleasure.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Brendan. And also, Heather, great job as usual. And looking forward to the next show. All right. Bye, everyone. Take care. Okay. and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Rakelin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From The Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's david, R-A-I-K-L-E-N, dot And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.